The following podcast is sponsored by the IFF Financial Corporation in special recognition of Firefighters and Cancer Awareness Month. Welcome to the IAFF Podcast. I'm Noel Lilly. And I'm Kevin Welsh, and we are your guest hosts for this very important Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. The IAFF has teamed up with Firefighter Cancer Support Network to bring you a ton of new information around prevention, treatment, research, and culture changes around cancer in the fire service. And today we have Dr. Sarah Jenke and Chief Brian Frieders. And uh, Dr. Jenke, we may start with you and maybe to tell us about your title and a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah, I'm Dr. Sarah Jenke. I am the director and a senior scientist with the Center for Fire Rescue and EMS Health Research. So we're a not-for-profit research firm. Um, it's under what's called NDRI USA, but we basically do um, research on on occupational epidemiology, um, mostly firefighters. We do some with military, some with corrections officers, but um, my favorite is firefighters. So I've been doing this for about 10, 15 years now. Um, grew up in a fire service family. So my dad retired as chief of Overland Park about, um, two, well, almost two decades ago now. So grew up around it and um, was really interested starting out with cardiovascular risk factors, but have gotten into looking at things like cancer. Um, I do a lot in the area of behavioral health and have had a, several recent studies on the health of women in the fire service. So it's been a really interesting, um, interesting career so far and get to hang out with really great people and, um, and with Brian Frieders too. So that's always a benefit. <laughs> All right, chief, awesome. would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and, uh, how you've gotten to where you are now? Uh, yeah. Um, so thanks for having me on. My name is Brian Frieders. Uh, I spent 29 and a half years in the fire service. I retired just last December from the Pasadena, California fire department. Um, I have been the president of the firefighter cancer support network for seven years. I've been involved in the organization since its inception 16 years ago. Um, my interest lies, uh, I am not a cancer survivor, but I've had way too many of my close friends and one of my best friends in the job die from cancer. This is a, an epidemic that exists in the fire service. But to me, uh, I feel like this organization, along with some of our alliances like Sarah Janke and her group, have been on a crusade to really try to conquer this epidemic in the fire service and try to preserve um, opportunities for our firefighters to really be safe and do the job they do that the public counts on us for without having these risks and hazards. And so um, it's a pleasure for me to be on here today to talk about what we're doing and what the organization has done for the past 16 years to help firefighters that get diagnosed with cancer and to talk about some of the ways that we can improve what we're doing to keep us a lot more safe. Awesome. Well, we're happy to have both of you. Thank you for joining us. Sarah, can we start with you? I heard you mention that you're doing some research specifically involving female firefighters. Can you talk about some of the issues that they face that are a little bit different than their male counterparts? Yeah, it's it's an interesting area because it's been hard to, um, you know, it's definitely a group that you have to look separately at and recruit separately for. And what we found when we started doing a lot of our research on cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular risk factors was that um, you, we couldn't get enough women in the samples just by going to departments. So we designed a couple studies to look specifically at women. And, you know, some of the things are similar to what you see with men in the fire service. I mean, like a fire is a fire, right? Um, but there's a lot in addition to what um, 
men face on like the behavioral health side of things, but then also looking at, it, it led to us to look at some things like exposure risks. Obviously some cancers are different, like men don't get cervical cancer, um, but women don't get prostate cancer. So see, there's benefits both directions, but it, it's been interesting to look at those and then also look at things like reproductive health. And it's now leading to more questions on the like um, for instance with reproductive health so we published a study we just had a second one come out that looked at um, rates of miscarriage and preterm labor among women in the fire service and actually found that it was higher than the general population so thinking through a lot of the um, risk factors that they face and a lot of you know everything from like sound and carcinogen exposures we also found that a lot of women um, didn't report their pregnancies until the end of the first trimester which is pretty standard, right, for um, for women when they're pregnant. But we also know that a lot of those risk factors that they face and, and the risks to the fetus occur within the first trimester. So that's a challenge. And and what do you do with that policy-wise is a um, kind of evolving question. But it's also led, interestingly, to research on men in the fire service and looking at, you know, we know um, now, we know that rates of miscarriage and preterm labor are higher. But what does that mean? You know, that we have obviously different reproductive organs in men that we're dealing with, but what does that mean for their reproductive health? And so there's a study that just came out of Europe that looked at rates of fertility, infertility among men, found higher rates of infertility among male firefighters um, than the general population. So it's also leading to some questions for men and women about things like um, oh, looking at um, the health of children and, and offspring. So there was one EFO report years ago that um, reported on a high rate of cancer among children of firefighters, I think in Washington state, but there hasn't been a lot more research done on that. And so that's one of the areas that I think is is evolving um, and, and will be kind of a next step question, looking at health of child, um, child health outcomes. Because if you think about all the things, and this ties back into cancer, because it's just another way to motivate, you know, people to do what they can, a lot of these same exposures that we are seeing that are leading to these higher rates of miscarriage um, are the same types of exposures that are leading to higher rates of cancer in the fire service. So it's really, um, I mean, some of the findings are really tragic when you think of it like on, as an individual person, but it's really fascinating from the perspective of science and, and what we can do and what we can prevent. So it all kind of ties in together in terms of um, in terms of health and wellness and then also looking at from the perspective of what you know the modifiable risk factors so what do we know how can we impact and change the things that can be changed we look at the stress of um stress of the job and we know that in the fire service right behavioral health has been um not you know is not a new issue fortunately one now that people are talking about quite a bit but when you look at behavioral health of women in the fire service you find rates of things like depression and post-traumatic stress tend to be higher when you group them as a as a um an entire group right so then the question like the logical questions though or like women just not made to do the job we did a study where when from the women's studies that we've done we looked at low medium and high rates of discrimination and harassment and found that if you divided that so divided it into tertiles the women who experienced high rates of discrimination and harassment we're the ones who are really struggling. So higher rates of depression, higher rates of post-traumatic stress. And when you compared the women who came in um, and were treated well, like well accepted, we're not discriminated against, we're not harassed, their rates of these disorders are like smack dab on where we see for men in the fire service. So um, in the kind of the grand scheme of things, like the takeaway message, which 
is logical, but now we have data to put behind it, is if you bring women or any minority group into the fire service and you treat them really shitty, they don't do well. <laughs> but if you bring them in and treat them like with, with uh, maybe respect and um, like they're part of the team, they actually don't, they are no more or less screwed up than men in the fire service, which I think is fantastic news. Um, so it's, it's just bit, like every question we answer leads to a million more questions, but yeah, it's, it's, it's some interesting stuff. So you're looking at actually pushing, hopefully, for cultural change, not just behavioral and safety things. Yeah, well, and I think it all ties together. I mean, really, I think it's not. Um, I, I think they're also interrelated. Like one one that um, topic that's come up recently is like gear fit for women, right? And um, looking at the challenge of appropriately fitting gear. So you think of that in terms of like injury and safety issues. So we, you know, we have some data that suggests that ill-fitting gear leads to higher rates of injury, like uh, that. But again, now we have the data to back that up and to support the need for that. Before, and I would say that's for women and not all men are created same size, shape, all those types of things. So I think it's like in the general sense of things, yes, definitely. But if you think about gear fit in terms of moving beyond just risk for injury, if you think about that as like part of the culture, say you come on to the say you, you, when you started the job, the only gear that was available to you was a size two um, women's fit set of PPE. Like how, like, what does that say about when you strutted out and you're like super tight cropped, you know, sh um, bunker coat? Like what does, what message does that say? If the only gloves they gave you were like these like really super tight fitting hot pink, gloves like what would that message give you about how welcome or accepting not that i'm saying that now the women's that we need like gloves that are pink to make women feel accepted but you know like in the grand scheme of things it's just you if you think about what that says about how valued people are when they're part of the organization if you know there are instances that i'm aware of that i i've heard of and happening in the last couple of weeks where women joined um joined the department and in academy did not have boots that fit and the way they were getting around it was putting three and four large like bulky pairs of wool socks on to get the boots to fit like it's 2021 i think that we should be able to get boots that fit anyone who wants to be in the fire service particularly given like the shift of what the fire service is now compared to what it was before it's not only running into buildings now you know, there's so many other parts of it and the job of what it means to be a firefighter is expanded from going into burning buildings to being kind of the all hazards responding to every single thing type of person. So I think it, um, I think we have to look at it as culture too, and not just, you know, it's, it's not just a safety issue. It's an all things issue. Makes sense. And maybe we can get chief readers in here. I, we, we want to first say thank you for all the work that you do with the Cancer uh, Support Network. We, we've seen the benefits of that with some of our dear friends in our fire department um, and saying, you know, we, we, we had even our engineer and, our, and a close friend in our same battalion are, are dealing with it now and saying how what a wealth of resources that was and just somebody initially contacting them and saying what we can do. Um, we've heard, and maybe you guys can correct us, that obviously that firefighters are at higher risk of cancer than the, than the population. And we've heard 
numbers all the way up to uh, for females specifically for women that it's almost 500% more. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, or if you guys can speak to that. I think, uh, first of all, thank you. You know, for me and the firefighter cancer support network, there there's, and, and y'all know this cause you're in the fire service. There's nothing more gratifying um, than helping someone else. There, there's just nothing more beneficial in my world and in your world and in the, in the public safety world than when you have an opportunity to make someone's life better, to ease some of their pain and to help change the direction of the life that they're going down or the path they're going down. So, uh, you know, to me, it is a pleasure and honor and an absolute privilege to be part of this organization and to be able to help those firefighters when they get diagnosed. Uh, because as you know, if you've ever been through that, it's it's just not a good place to be. And for uh, having an organization like the FCSN that started with Mike Dubron in 2005 and has grown to the level that it's at right now is it, to the nationwide level that it's at today is is a big deal. And it's doing it's making a tremendous difference in people's lives. So for me, it's a it's a privilege to be part of this organization more so than anything else. Um, as it relates to the proclivity of firefighters and cancer, yeah, I mean, the, the general population is generally unhealthy. And when you see cancer rates in firefighters significantly higher than the general population, and we're supposed to be healthier than the general population, that's alarming. And I think there's been some great studies that have come out um, all the way from the NIOSH study in 2013. Uh, Sarah's group has been part of some of those studies. And even up until this year, there's been a pretty decent set of uh, data that shows the propensity and the statistical significance in cancer and firefighters. So we know there's an issue. And just to tie into what Sarah was saying about female firefighters, you know, we when we first launched this whole education and awareness campaign back in 13. And with the, with the publication of our white paper, we had no idea how wide of a reach that this was going to become. And now seeing that it's not just male firefighters, the, the face of the fire service has always been the, you know, six foot white male with a dark hair and a mustache. Every poster, everything that you saw that related to fire service advertising was a white male with a mustache, medium build, um, you know, and, and that was it. That was what the, the face of the fire, fire, fire service was. What we realized a few years ago is that we need to pay very close attention to our female firefighters and some of the issues that are specific to female health and wellness. And, you know, when Sarah and I talked about this a couple of years ago, um, it, it became very interesting to see some of the statistics in female firefighters as it relates to cancer. And some of the numbers are even higher than males. And I think that she makes a good distinguishment between those that are treated and accepted well versus those that are harassed and, and have a difficult way through their indoctrination and through their training. Um, we know that stress is a significant contributor to cancer and other illness. And I think that when we recognize that, we can start making changes culturally and operationally to make things better. It's just one more facet of this cancer epidemic that continues to grow that we need to continue to focus on uh, because female firefighters, generally speaking, uh, aren't accepted as they should be. They, they have issues that this male dominated profession never paid attention to. And I'm grateful to have colleagues that recognize that, that we can, we can focus on and really make a significant difference. That's great. You know, when people come to me and they're looking to get in the fire service, I'm always usually very candid with them to say in the, the pluses and the minuses uh, of getting in the career field. And I think um, when you look at it, if you stack them up next to each other, the pluses for me always outweigh the negatives. But I am very candid with them to say that you are going to be gone quite a bit. You know, there are stresses on the family because you are gone 50% of the month. 
there are uh, stresses of sleep deprivation. There's stresses of knowing that your friends are going to get sick and injured. And I'm always very candid with them. And I, I don't, I don't know if this research is going to help in that, or if you think that's beneficial. I do see a lot of recruitment for women a lot, but I, I do see that they are only putting the the positive things out there. And I wonder if it's beneficial for your research or other people to actually tell them what. Uh, so some of the significant drawbacks or their chances of, of, of getting sick and things like that, if that's beneficial getting into the career so that they can take the precautions, like you were saying, if they got pregnant or, or take those precautions early in the year or early in the career, like putting BA on and having correct gear and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think that it's, I think all around, it's important for people to know what they're getting into. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that it's, um, being the fire service is a stressful job. I mean, beyond just the stress of, you know, responding to calls and all those, and, and that's, so we see, you know, there's the, the acute exposures. So where there's like a, a significant um, instance in the data, one of the highest rates of post-traumatic stress was actually post Oklahoma city bombing when they looked at that and firefighters. So, I mean, there's like that acute, you know, line of duty death, obviously um you you really have to watch for ptsd but there is the like repeated exposure to trauma and just the kind of the stress upon stress upon stress shift work in and of itself has been classified now as a probable probable carcinogen um a, across for, for anyone um and so those things and i i think it is important for people to be aware of you know this is what you're getting into partly because it's important all those prevention pieces. And I think it is harder for firefighters to be healthy than the general population, just based on uh, based on all of it. Now, I will say we do see women in the fire service tend to be even healthier than men in the fire service. Like if you look at rates of obesity, you look at rates of and how often they work out, how intense they work out, often it's higher and, and they're, um, they're healthier than men. I think often they have to, they, they report in our qualitative stuff, they sit, talk about, you know, having feeling like they have to um, work twice as hard to be considered half as good. So I think that has also resulted in a really resilient group of women, which is um, pretty phenomenal. So there's, and there is some benefit to looking at what are they doing that is resilience building. Um, the other thing that's really interesting though, and we've, I've been in some focus groups where I've talked to women and they've been telling me like sometimes the most horrific stories about like assault or just being, you know, incredibly mistreated and then we get to the point where I'm like, you know, so, wow, this is, you know, I wonder if you regret this choice. And they're like, oh, no, 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 best job in the world. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? But they're like, no, 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 no. Like this part was difficult. These, you know, these, but it's still the best job in the world. So um, it's been an interesting, I mean, there are things that I'm like, well, I would never not, I would have been out, but I mean, it's, they still love the job. And so I think that for everyone, I mean, I think it's not for everyone. I don't think it's a job for everyone. I think for the people who are going to love the job, I think, yes, it's a job to love. But I think that you do have to go into it, male or female, with eyes wide open. I mean, you know, when we look at, we've started having these discussions around. So what if we find that child health outcomes are more negative um, for men and women who have, who are in the fire service? Like, what does that mean policy-wise? What, what are the implications of that? Um you know, there were some conversations about there are certain occupations where people are encouraged to bank their sperm early on if they want to have kids later. I, would that be? I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't think we have the data to tell us if that's necessary, but it's some interesting questions. And it's, you know, I mean, it's I always love whatever the next research question is, but 
it, it could have some interesting implications for when people come on the job and thinking about what they do. And, you know, hopefully it helps encourage people on like the day to day to, you know, just clean your gear or clean, you know, take shower within the hour, all the good things on the, on the list that Brian's got, um, and do those things. But I mean, health is, it's, it's harder to be healthy as a firefighter than it is average person on the street. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, uh, we have a phrase that Kevin and I use and we use in our department, best job I ever had. And it's, it's across, obviously it's across all departments and even, you know, across different just groups. And I think that kind of captures the idea that while we do have sometimes the most difficult job you could have, there is that sense of serving the public and even that shared suffering that makes it a does make it a very rewarding job. And while sometimes it can be very difficult, there is that, that sense behind it, that it is the best job I ever had and that there are things you're willing to sacrifice for that. So that, that is good to hear. I like hearing that. Well, and if you think about it, there's something that's nice about the fire service where like the poor cops don't have like the, like the familyness, like they do, but in a different way, you know, I mean, you come back and I think that's why, I mean, I, to be honest, I think that's why rates of things like post-traumatic stress and depression and, and anxiety aren't higher in the fire service is because you have that, like you are part of the family once you're in the fire service. I, you know, I know growing up when I went, I remember senior spring break, which hindsight, probably not, I can't believe my parents let me do this, but we road tripped, um, down to Florida, accidentally stopped in, um, uh, New Orleans. And, but my dad said, if you get in any trouble, find the closest fire station and, you know, ask for help tell them, you know, my dad's a chief in Overland Park. And like, you can go anywhere you go. Now, granted, fair warning, your kids don't want to see every firehouse when you travel. I'm giving you that information right now, but we did. And like everywhere you went, you, you like you're part of that you're part of something bigger when you're in the fire service which is um like that's that's what is so right about the fire service like how where else are you going to get that and your families are part of it which i think is part of the reason why you know you see so we actually did a study because there has been some information out there i kept hearing rates of divorce in the fire service are higher than the general population so we actually looked at that and we we looked at it across several studies and the rate now with some exceptions of like some fire stations or firehouses overall the rate of divorce in the fire service is lower than the general population oh wow i know i i was surprised like i i i assumed that but i think when we go back and kind of look at what that is i think it's it might be i think it's likely because um you have the camaraderie of being a fire wife or if you know not not as much a fire husband because actually rates for women are higher than the general population higher than men but for uh, men in the fire service the rate was lower and i think it's because you know there's such like i, I use the example of you know like i'm a, as a scientist i love my job i love what i do um it's really exciting sitting behind a computer every day all day typing stuff but like i don't have a, a piva <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a P value tattooed anywhere on my body, right? Like I don't love it that much. And I, and there's not, I also give the example of like, there's not at, you go to like the American college of epidemiology conference and there's not like epidemiologist husband um, sweatpants. Now someone did has since made my husband fire service researcher <laughs> husband sweatpants. 
but those had to be specially ordered off of Etsy. But you're on, you know, you're on, um, you're on, go to any conference and like, my kids all have like, great, you know, the grandpa fire chief, so I don't know what the t-shirt is, but you know, they all like, we have little fire trucks all over the freaking house. It's just part, like, it is, it's part of, it's part of who you are and who, you know, in the fire service, it's, it's your, it's, it's bigger than just you, I guess. No doubt. We'd, we'd love to talk, uh, maybe chief readers can expand on Whoa. some tangible steps that may, we might take to mitigate some of the risks that we're exposed to. I know a generation ago, you know, guys slept in our fire department with their turnouts next to their bed. And, and uh, I know cultural change and change is very slow moving in the fire service, but based on maybe your research and your, and uh, things that you're seeing that some of the things that guys like Noel and I, who are earlier in our career, what we can do to help mitigate some of these things. Well, you know, I've said this over and over again, that uh, in the fire service, our culture and our behavior is killing us. The things that we do that have been accepted practices for a hundred years are some of the biggest problems. You know, the turnouts, that's a great example. So how many times do you come back to the fire station and the squads run in 50 calls a day and you see them passed out in the recliner wearing their turnout pants, you know, and that's just not okay. And, and, And nobody says anything about that. Or how many times do you walk into your station and because it was built probably in 1930, the turnout rack is on the apparatus floor and there's dirty turnouts from a fire you had um, five months ago. And, and, then, and the person that wears those doesn't choose to wash them. How many helmets do you have that used to be yellow or whatever color they are, are now melted or they've got soot all over them because oh, I'm going to go teach the academy so I can look like a seasoned firefighter. You know, that those dirty turnouts and that melted helmet are some sort of a strange badge of courage. And it just boggles your mind because we have published over and over and over again information about the importance of getting that crap off of your gear because it's killing you. What about putting your turnouts next to the apparatus at night? Why do you have your turnouts turned down next to the open door of the cab of your apparatus? That three milliseconds uh, is going to save your life rather than getting benzene diesel exhaust blown all over it from the apparatus that goes out all night. And you guys that are sitting on the truck company sleeping all night, your turnouts are getting filled with benzene from the diesel exhaust that goes in and out of that station for the real firefighters that are running calls. So, (laughs) but but the reality is why, why do we keep our turnouts on the apparatus floor? Is there a real big mystery why we get prostate and testicular cancers at a higher rate? You can't you can't tell me that doesn't have some sort of a tie into it. There's no science behind that, but common sense has to play a factor as well. And you know, and that's the thing about the fire service that sort of tra- it, it's been challenging. I've read the research, I've I've participated in the research, I've you know analyzed the data with all the research scientists, and and it's really good. And we've proven scientifically that this stuff causes cancer. Yet. The common sense approach for the average crayon firefighter like myself is, duh, wash my gear, take a shower, wear my SCBA when we're doing overhaul, stop trying to be a hero, and use your brain. Let's try that for a while. And and, and the, the culture doesn't accept that. The culture wants you to be the grit fireman that's, you know, hopefully someone's going to get a picture of me in the news media with my sooty face, you know, eating smoke and wearing this dirty, filthy turnout coat because I'm awesome. No, you're not. You're stupid, period. Yeah, we hear that. All that resonates with us, even though obviously we came from different departments. We've definitely seen plenty of that in our short time on the job. I think, unfortunately, the change has to come not just from the top down, but also from the bottom up. We have to own that as well, 
because there are policies in place. You know, you mentioned a bunch of stuff right now, and we, in the department that I'm in and the departments that I'm aware of, we have policies about that stuff, but they're not always followed. And, you know, that's coming from the top down, so they're doing their part, but on the ground level, we're not always the best at, at taking ownership of that and doing our part, so we have to do a better job of that as well. And I think it does take... It does take one or two guys to take ownership and, and be that leader and do those things. We have a we have a guy, I'll share a little personal story. We might have to edit this out. We've got a guy in our department that Kevin and I worked around um, early on in the first few years. And he was honestly the only guy we'd ever been around that put his SCBA on during overhaul, even though that's a policy. It just wasn't it just wasn't done. It wasn't cool. And Kevin and I both respected that guy and listened to him explain why he did that. And then it became something that we adopted and that we continue to do today. And the more guys you get doing that, the more accepted it becomes. And then it does become something that while it was a policy, now it's something that's actually enacted by more guys. And it's incredibly important. We all know that that's a very dangerous phase of the fire and that we shouldn't be exposing ourselves to that. But it is hard to get over those cultural things. And so you do need you do need those few guys to step up. Even if you're not in a leadership role, you may be just a brand new fireman, but be willing to step up and, and take that on and, and do the right thing. I think that's very important. Leadership does not require you to have rank. Leadership is not about rank. Leadership is about doing what's right, period. And you can never go wrong for doing what's right. So if you're a rookie firefighter that just came out of the academy, there's an expectation you're going to follow the rules and regulations, right? On day on day one year and one one day, you you know what happens. Everybody everybody's relaxes. They sit in their recliners. Oh, I can watch TV. Hey, make your own coffee. Uh, you know all that stuff. But here's the deal: is you're right when you say that there's policies in place and there's people not following them. That's a problem. And if there's someone who is recognizing that, like you just articulated, and no one's doing anything about that, that's the bigger problem. If someone has accepted that as okay, they are the problem. If you've got a company officer, if you've got a chief officer who doesn't come down hard on people that aren't protecting themselves, then that's the problem. Tell them to go give, hand them a mirror and say, I think I know what the problem is, Cap. Here it is. And hand them the mirror. That's the problem. Hmm. The, Joe Finn from Boston Fire, he's the fire commissioner, had a diagnosee every two weeks. Boston Fire, every two weeks, had a firefighter that was diagnosed with cancer. And he said, I'm done. We're not doing this anymore. And we went in and trained 1,400 Boston firefighters on cancer prevention and awareness. Imagine how much fun that was. And you know what? Every single one of them, because every single one of them had, an, had was impacted in some capacity with a death in the fire service, they listened attentively. There were four negative evaluations of our courses. And you know what all the theme of all four of them was? I didn't want to hear it because I knew it was true. I didn't want to hear it because I've behaved like an idiot for 25 years and now I'm just going to have to wait and see what happens. That was the feed. That was the negative feedback we got in our courses. And Boston Fire changed everything about what they do. They changed everything. Do they still do stupid stuff? I'm sure. But they were the most receptive group of people that we ever taught in the, in the fire service. And they made a significant change in what they do. And that's a traditional, historic pride of ownership department. And if they can do it, there is another fire department on earth that can't do it. Amen. Yeah. You know, Dr. Dr. Jenke, I love that you're talking about the behavioral side of things as well. I know that we're, uh, we're getting into that quite a bit. And that's one of the reasons why Nolan and I started a podcast to talk to things around the table that were not being talked about. 
And for me personally, we love going on fires. That is not a stressor to us. That is something that we enjoy doing. We train for all the time and it's something that we get to do our job. It's the things that creep up on you is the two-year-old cardiac arrest. It's the CHFer who is gulping for air and you go on one of those after one of those. And our, our medical run volume has is skyrocketed. And I think those are the stressors that aren't really being talked about. And I don't know if you have any research towards that or if you're looking into the behavioral side on what we can do. I know what Noel and I preach is that we got to do what we can to eat right, to get in the sunshine, to get our workouts in and try to sleep as much as when we're off to try to combat some of the things that you see and then be open and talk about it and say, that bothered me. How did you feel about it? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that you're right on track with that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, that and then I think just being aware of the fact that different things are going to bother different people at different times for different reasons. And sometimes I've heard stories, um, you know, where people have called me and said, you know, five years ago, we had this conversation about behavioral health. And I kind of thought it was bullshit. Like, I've, I didn't think I'd ever been ever been bothered by anything. And then they'd have flashbacks, or they would have, you know, they said something, whatever ripped the bandaid off. And I, I've often heard it described as, you know, it's like you take all your worst calls, and you put them um, in a file drawer, or you put them, you know, lock them in, in a um, room in your mind, and there's like a hallway in your mind of the worst calls. And like, granted, that's normal, that's healthy, like you want to be able to kind of compartmentalize things. But I think if you get to the point where you think it's never going to bother me, those things, I mean, that's just not the way the brain works, right? Your, your brain is processing everything that you see, and all those memories are stored, whether they're readily accessible or not. Um, so I think doing all those things, realizing that it's all part of the bigger picture is so important. And, and then just being aware that like it could come back. And if it does, that's okay too. And then you deal with it then. And, and also I think even beyond just the being aware of your own mental health is being aware of other people's mental health. I mean, I think that the approach of, again, the benefit of the fire service is, is resilience building, like part being part of that camaraderie and that family is what is what's so helpful and so i think noticing your own health but also and, and monitoring your own health you know now there are apps out there where you can kind of do self screens where you can look at like even we have a project on alcohol use in the fire service right now um and paying attention to how much are you drinking um are, are, is that like in general when we used to do qualitative the qualitative work around alcohol use and we'd say what do you think a binge is and then we would give a definition of the binge people would like laugh because you know what it's five or more in in two hours for uh, men and two or more four or more in two hours for women and um they would laugh at that because like the fire service and people would say i think we drink like with the general population let me tell you i've run the numbers on it like literally we've run the numbers on it and fire service is like off the charts <laughs> even higher than than the military which i laugh because it's something usually that people are like uh, we're, we're pretty proud of that but and no parties are more fun than fire service anything fire service related but you're know, even looking at that and looking at the role that alcohol plays in um in balancing it and managing the stress and people typically don't see that and when we would ask questions around that do you think you drink because of the stress of the job for the most part people's answers were like no 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 no. i one one guy i was sitting we we're sitting at the kitchen table we were doing a focus group and he goes i don't think so because i don't think that's what we do he goes now like if i had a stressful shift or a stressful call you know often i'll go home and like have a couple beers when i get home and i'm like that is the definition of what I just asked you. It, but they did, but he didn't see it that way, right? And and I think when you're surrounded by, you know, about 50% of fire service career volunteer, like it, it, across the board in 
every study we've done and every study that we've looked, when we've looked, talked to other people in other places, um, and we've done national studies like Maine to Guam, about 50% report binge drinking in the past, um, in the past 30 days. It, like that, if you look at that and the overall health impact of that in, ter in terms of like calories on top of, um, of uh, what you're eating on a daily basis. I mean, we have people who have consumed in fact, the that or the nutritional epidemiologist that I work with when we did our 24-hour food recalls was like, there's no way this is right. There's no way someone could consume a case of beer in a day. And I'm like, oh, just <laughs> you wait. <laughs> I said, oh, I bet they could um, and did. But so looking at alcohol use, looking at your own alcohol use, looking at other people's alcohol, and then being willing. I think the other big, big, big step and I think this is one of the next things to look at in in the way that we talk is really helping people to know when to say something to somebody else. I mean, I've been surprised at the number of people speaking of the alcohol project who have said, you know, I I really had a problem. I didn't realize. And after the fact, several people had said, I wanted to say something, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to talk about it. So then like, how do you have those difficult conversations? Whether it's a difficult conversation around, I noticed that you're drinking a lot, what's going on? Or just like, hey, you've really kind of been an asshole lately. Are you okay? You know, it, being able to have those conversations, because we're horrible at assessing our own behavioral health in so many ways. Like, it takes a lot for me personally to, before I'm like, wait a minute, why, I, I seem less happy lately. Or I seem, you know, I, I am I struggling with depression or something like that, where it takes, you know, my, I, my sister that I, I'll share that I've struggled with depression in the past off and on. And it takes usually my sisters going like, what's up with you? Let's go grab a cup of coffee because you're not your usual self before I'm like, oh, I'm not my usual self. And maybe I need to get, you know, maybe I need to talk to someone or maybe I need to get back on an antidepressant or whatever it is. Um, and, and so really, I think that that's another of the next, like, how do you have that difficult conversation? If you notice someone's grumpier than usual, if you know, they're notice they're drinking more than usual, you know, they're, they're just going through a lot. Because I think it does, um, like you said earlier, you talked about like that it impacts family. And I think, I, I think sometimes we underestimate the impact on family because it, sometimes there's a situation where like you're have a rough day. You don't want to go home. You don't want to share. There are those people who like, I don't want to burden my family with this horrible or my wife or my husband with this horrible call that I had. Um, but then also that kind of creates a divide, right? And it it's also, there's also this instance where, not that I'm saying everyone should, not that you need to like relive all your worst calls with your spouse, but it does, it, if you run, let's say you run, a, you have a really shitty day and you have, you know, pull a dead baby out of a pool and it's really bothering you. When you go home, you have like a less capacity. Like the fact that you forgot the milk on the way home doesn't seem like a big deal to you. Where maybe for your spouse, that's of course an example of everything that's wrong with your relationship ever. But in you, you know, if you're walking into that with the mindset of like, man, I pulled a dead baby out of a pool, and then there's this argument waiting for you at home about the milk. Like, I think it, it, I think just like your give a shit meter can be full sometimes, um, but at home, I think that plays out in you know in different ways sometimes. So I think I think there is an impact. Um, you know, I think there is a positive side of it that most of the time, the people in, that are married into the fire service, you know, they know that that's a different, um, they know what to expect a lot of times, but I, but I think it does have an impact because I think you only have, you know, 
so much room in the give a shit meter and, and maybe a lot of it's taken up with dealing with dead babies. I've had a total paradigm shift in the last eight to 10 years on the mental health and PTSD side of things. I would, I did some time in the military and when I came out, people would ask me about post-traumatic stress because it was a thing in the media kind of for the first time, at least in my generation. And I would blow it off and just be like, ah, it's not real. Those are people just seeking attention. And I feel really bad about that now for saying those things and having those conversations, but that's how I felt. And then as time progressed and I got into this career and started actually living life and dealing with things, I realized that, like you said, the things that might bother me are going to be different than someone else. And so you don't even have to be in the fire service or the military or law enforcement to struggle and deal with PTSD. It's a thing that happens to anyone anywhere. It just depends on what you go through and what your capacity is for that. And I think one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest positive realizations for me was that having those conversations and being willing to talk about it does two things. It helps me deal with it. And it's obviously not the only thing, but it is incredibly helpful. And then it also helps those around you to realize that, hey, this is okay to have these issues and then to be vocal about it and talk about it. Because if you do just bottle it up and keep it inside, it to be vocal about it and talk about it. Because if you do just bottle it up and keep it inside, it's not going to get any better. It isn't. It's just your, your bucket of what you can deal with is going to continue to get more and more full. And you're going to be more likely to overflow all of that junk out on the people that you love and care for or work with. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, Dr. Janky, I had one more question about the research that you're doing or that you're aware of. Is there anything that you're involved in right now that you're excited about and what are you hoping to achieve with those potential outcomes from those studies? My problem is I'm excited about everything. So. <laughs> we didn't get that. <laughs> we picked that up. I like it. Yeah, no, I'm excited about, I, you know, I really, I, what I love about this is it's, there's just so many questions to be answered. I love that we're expanding some of the work that we're doing now. We're working with um, women in fire. We're also working with Jeff Burgess, looking at reproductive, doing some more work on reproductive health women, but then also looking at like, how can we create, um, we're, we're coming around with some qualities, a, a friend out in, um, San Francisco termed it the virtual kitchen table. Like how do you, for the folks who aren't getting that at the firehouse, how can you create that? So that's one of the things that I'm really excited about um, on the projects. We have a part, one of the things that I'm really excited about that we have coming up that we're forming is, is working on creating more of a dissemination network. So it's really kind of an offshoot of all the work that we've been um, doing in the past. And I know Brian's been a huge partner in this in looking at how do we take the research and really move it from, you know, a paper in even like the top medical journal, no one cares what's in there, nor do they want to read it, myself included, other than like skimming it. How do we take that and make it usable? And then how do we connect all those people that are, you know, from the scientists to the podcasters to the, um, you know, local health and wellness committee chair, how do we kind of get that information out to them? So we're really excited about doing some of moving some of those things forward. We'll have some um, progress in there. So I'm really excited about that. I'm really, I mean, I'm excited about all of it. Like what an amazing time to be involved in the fire service and health and wellness. Right. And you, there's always that like, Oh, you know, however many hundreds of years of um, tradition unimpeded by progress, but think about where we are now compared to 10 years ago. Like the fact that you were like, come on the podcast and talk about the health of women in the fire service. And I'm talking about, you know, 
um, reproductive health of women and bringing up sperm and uh, like, like, well, this would not have happened 10 years ago. Like, I think that this is amazing that, that you even wanted to have this conversation. So I'm excited about all of it. I'm excited that you wanted to sit down and talk to us for an hour about like cancer prevention and what's going wrong and what's going right. And, and that, you know, it, even, anyone even cares that like the FCSN is out there doing what the amazing work that they're doing. Like this is, this is progress. This is the, the tradition is shifting and what an awesome time to be in this field. See, I just get too excited about all of it. <laughs> I love it. As a follow-up to that, do you have anything that you would offer as advice right now to female firefighters, things that they could do, things that they could change, maybe things they could look at differently that could help potentially prevent some of this risk of cancer as they step out into this career? I, I think it, I think like the general sense of things, male and female, is do what you can when you can. Like you're never going to have like a clean fire with no smoke or it wouldn't be a fire, obviously. Um, but do what you can when you can. Clean the gear. If you don't have to be wearing your gear, like I don't think you have to wear your bunker gear to do your grocery shopping, then don't wear your gear when you're grocery shopping. Like limit your exposures as much as you can, anytime you can. Shower do, you know, do all those things, but then also beyond that for everyone, realize that all the other health behaviors that go into um, increasing risk for cancer are, are things that you have to be even more vigilant about if you're in the fire service than the general population. Everything from, you know, not, not binge drinking on a regular basis, um, fitness, nutrition, sleep, like sleep overlays and underlays everything else. Realizing that behavioral health is not just like another, you know, a side thing, that behavioral health really is central to all the other health risk factors. I think um, you asked me for one thing, but that's kind of all the things <laughs> and it's a lot of really big things. Sorry. <laughs> Chief, Chief, I know you had a bunch of things earlier on in the podcast that you did mention that were along that similar line of things that we could change. As you've been sitting here listening, do you have anything else you'd like to add to that that we could use to prevent the cancer? Yeah, you know, it's the 11 recommendations that we made in the 2003 or 2013 white paper are really straightforward. Wear your SCBA during overhaul. Take a shower within the hour after you're done. Decon yourself when you come out of the fire. Make sure you get your medical screening exams. We haven't talked about that, but the medical screening exam is the key to success in preventing devastating cancers. Are they going to catch all of them? No, but an annual felt wellness exam, getting a colonoscopy at 40, getting pap smears at 30, mammograms at 30 for women, making sure that you're caring for your health and advocating for your health is one of the big keys to success in, in mitigating the cancer risk. Not to mention cleaning your turnouts, cleaning your gear, um, all the, keeping your gear out of the living quarters, you know, don't have an ice machine in the apparatus for just simple stuff, simple common sense stuff like that. It's not, and, and forgive me for saying this, but it's not scientific procedural stuff that we have to worry about. It's, it's the everyday normative behaviors that we have conditioned ourselves to accept as good and as safe, and they're not, and we have to change that. It's, it's a personal responsibility for every person that wears that badge. It's a personal responsibility for everybody that, that supervises and wears bugles on their collar. It's a personal responsibility for anyone that's involved in firefighting to make sure that they are caring for themselves so that they can help the public, which is what they expect of you. Awesome. 
Chief, earlier on in this podcast, you said something that was really impactful to me and is going to be something that drives me to actually change some of my behaviors. You were talking about leadership and the fact that it doesn't require rank. Can you expound on that one more time for us before we close this out? Yeah, I think a lot of the fire service culture is revolves around uh, we, we are a, a paramilitary organization. We, we have a rank structure that um, essentially is called upon to manage and uh, unify decision making. In the context of cancer and in the context of behavioral wellness and everything else that we do to protect ourselves, leadership is not about having rank. Leadership is about personal responsibility. It's about making sure that even if you've got five minutes or five years or 15 years in the job, that you're doing everything you can to protect yourself. Wearing an SCBA is, is not, it doesn't cost money. It's not something that's out of the ordinary. It is accepted. You don't have to wear bugles to be safe. You just don't. And imagine the example you're going to set for those that are watching what you're doing by doing things like wearing your SCBA, making sure your gear is clean, having that personal responsibility, ensuring that everything that you do is is preventing you from getting this diabolical disease, period. I love that. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us, both of you. This has been a really informative conversation. I know it's going to have a positive impact to those that listen. So thank you for your time. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Thank you for doing this. It's a big deal. Um, this is a this is a fantastic program. I hope that everybody's listening to this, listens very carefully, and knows and has the confidence the IFF, the FCSN, and all of our partners are working hard to bring you the best and, and most relevant information about cancer in the fire service so that you can do your job. This has been the IAFF Podcast. This program has been sponsored by the IAFF Financial Corporation. For more information on who we are and what services are available to members, including our supplemental cancer benefits, visit our website at iff-fc.com.